Well, good morning. All right, if you could open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. I guess I've been kind of put on notice and challenged that I'm going to be shorter than Corey here, so we're going to move. We've got to move quick. So hurry and turn to 1 Corinthians 15, because uh, I don't believe I've ever taught this message before without it have been an hour, so it's going to be less than that today. So 1 Corinthians 15, if you would, and then we'll uh, get started. Um, a while back, a book was written, Ken Ham. How many of you guys have ever heard of Ken Ham? He's the guy that uh, developed the whole Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. Who, who's been to Creation Museum or Ark Encounter down in the Kentucky, Cincinnati area? That's who Ken Ham is. All that to say, he wrote a book, and the book titled was, was titled Already Gone. And it was all about youth, people your age, in churches, and the whole issue... And it looked at statistics of what happened to youth that came to church and heard the Bible preached and what happens to them after they are not youth anymore and they turn 18, 19, and 20. And the reason the book is titled that, they're already gone. He's saying even though you're sitting in a church today, you've already checked out. You're only coming here probably because potentially parents are making you or, or whatever the reason is. And the, the point I want to do this weekend is... I want to give you all a reason for your faith. I want you guys to have your own faith. This is not something, you should not just know what you believe. You should know why you believe what you believe. I made that a point in my family all the time with my two boys. Listen, you can't just believe what I believe. You need to believe or know why you believe what you believe. And we're going to have to have reasons for our faith. And those reasons are found right here in the pages of Scripture. And so that's my intent of this whole weekend. It's, uh, it's entitled, we're going to do four messages, and they're all going to be really firm foundations on which you can build your life. When you go to build a house, you don't want to build it. And the Bible even talks about a story, the guy that builds it on sinking sand or on, a, on, on rock. You want to build it on a good foundation so that it doesn't sink, fall, lean, tilt. You guys familiar with the Leaning Tower of Pisa? You guys know what that is? They, that's got a bad foundation. That's why it's leaning. So, and they actually have to keep doing modifications to make sure it doesn't completely fall over, but that's up to the engineers to figure that out. But the point being, we don't want to build on something that is not a firm foundation. So, uh, tech, you're in 1 Corinthians 15. Run over to 1 Corinthians uh, 10, since you're there. Um, there's an important verse here in verse 12. 10 verse 12, it says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. You know, sometimes we think we're on solid ground, and then we find out, uh-oh, we didn't, we're not on solid ground. And uh, we've got to make sure that we are walking that narrow path of righteousness. And, th and that's what I'm hoping to, to, to look at in each of the messages we, we do uh, this weekend. Um, how many of you ever been to Hawking Hills? Yeah, pretty neat place. We, uh, we've been there as a family. And I, uh, when Elliot, he's 19 now, he was like five years old. So we're on this trail, Cantwell Cliffs. It's one of the places you can go. And we're up there on the path. And I'm thinking, I'm a little bit nervous about heights. So we're on the the uh, upper rim, and so there's a drop-off, like 200 feet, okay? And there's a waterfall and a bridge. We're getting ready to walk over this bridge. The waterfall goes under, and like the wall on this thing is like this high, and when I'm going to walk here, I'm like, yeah, that, that, that freaks me out. I'm not feeling very comfortable about that. So I thought I knew better, so I was going to get off the trail, and I was going to, I took Elliot and had him in my hand, and I'm, I'm walking, you know, I don't know, 
10 feet from where the path is and I'm like, let's just step over the little creek here. And I'm telling you, as soon as I did, my foot slipped and I was down. And it kind of freaks me out to this day. I don't think I can really go back to that spot without a little panic moment because Elliot, he claims he saved my life that day as a five-year-old by holding onto my hand. But quite <laughs> frankly, thankfully, I just didn't slip and go under that bridge and, and 200 foot waterfall and I'm dead. The whole, the whole point is I should have stayed on the path. I should have stayed where I knew the engineers had built a nice bridge, I'd have been fine, but I got off the path thinking I knew better. And you know, the Bible says there's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. So we want to make sure we're building on firm foundations, and those foundations should be found in the Word of God, in God's Word. Uh, that's what we can trust. And that's uh, my hope to, to you know, give you some confidence today. So we're in 1 Corinthians. Run back over to first, uh, chapter 15. I'm going to read a few verses here dealing with the resurrection. This is known as the great resurrection chapter. If you're not familiar with your Bible, you're going to learn some things. But 1 Corinthians 15, it's really all about the resurrection. We're going to start in verse 12. It says, now, if Christ... Wait a minute, am I in the right spot? Yeah, there it is. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? She had some people thinking, there is no resurrection. Verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and our, your faith is also vain. So Paul's clearly saying, listen, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, this whole thing's a waste of your time and my time. Why am I even up here talking to you? Why are you in church? I'm telling you, you're, you're here, hopefully, because you believe Christ rose from the dead. But today we're going to talk about, and that's the title, we're going to prove it. That's my whole intent, is to prove that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Uh, keep going. Look in verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. In other words, we're lying to you, because I'm sitting here telling you, I saw the resurrected Christ, is what Paul's saying. And because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, empty. Ye are yet in your sins. In other words, your sins are not forgiven. You're going to pay for your own sin if Christ did not rise from the dead. There's no other hope. Verse uh, 18. Then they also which are fallen asleep, that means dead. If you're in Christ, you don't really ever die. You're in Christ and you're saved. But it says, verse 18, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. In other words, those that did believe, if Christ didn't rise from the dead... They're also perished, just like John 3.16 says won't happen if you believe. So the whole issue is it's a big deal, this whole thing of the resurrection. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. There's nothing more miserable to be coming to church, listen to people like me preach the Bible, and it not be true. What's the point? Don't waste your time. And I'm just telling you. We don't have to be miserable. We have many infallible proofs, and we're going to look at them. Verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Look at your introduction in your notes. We have many good and logical reasons to believe and trust in the God of the Bible. Some of them I list for you there in the parentheses. Creation being one of them. We're going to look at that a lot this, this evening. Conscience. How many of you have a conscience? Do you know what a conscience is? How, raise your hand if you have a conscience or even know what one is. 
Good. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. It'll define it here in the opening. And then we just have the supernatural Bible itself. Don't have time to cover that. But in fact, in Psalm 119, or excuse me, Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament of God showeth His handiwork. While Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. It's clearly seen. We can clearly know that God exists just from creation and, and, and what we see outside. The word conscience is made up of two Latin words. Con means with, science is knowledge. That's where you get the word conscience. See, you're learning some Latin right now. You're in a Latin class. How fun. Okay, when man sins, we do so with knowledge. That's what a conscience is. That's why you ever feel guilty. You're doing something wrong. You're lying to your parents or stealing something from your parents. Your conscience, if it's lighting up, it's doing its job. That's what God put it there for. So you know when you sin. He put that in every heart, in the heart of every man and woman. So, uh, so when, we, uh, when a man sins, we do so with knowledge that it is wrong. No other animal of any sort has a conscience. There is no right or wrong in the animal kingdom. That is why adultery, stealing, killing are not wrong in the animal world. But we are very different than the animals. It's exactly what the Bible teaches. He made us different. He made us in His image. Um, we, who were made in the image of God from the very beginning, know when we sin. We know God is our Creator, even though many do not like to retain God in their knowledge. And that's what happens. They try to pretend God doesn't exist. But if that isn't already enough reason to believe, God did something most amazing. He sent His Son, Jesus, to earth. He was killed, He was buried, and then He rose again. There's your blanks. The resurrection is the most powerful proof for faith in Jesus as God and Savior. God said He gave us many infallible proofs. That's in Acts 1.3. For this most important miracle, which is the foundation of the Christian faith, remove the resurrection of Jesus and Christianity crumbles and fades away. Everyone will someday have to answer this question. What did you do with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ? The resurrection is truly a game changer if it actually happened. Today we will prove that it did. So with that, I'm going to advance the slide here. How many of you guys have taken geometry yet in high school? You're familiar with what that looks like, right? It's a proof. Okay, that's something you have to do. You have to do a proof in geometry. All right? We're not going to go over that proof. I don't want to give you guys any, you know headaches or anything. But the point being is, I want to define what a geometric proof is. Now listen up. It's a method of determining whether a statement is true or false with the use of logic, facts, and deductions. And that's what we're going to do with the resurrection today. We're just going to look at proofs for the resurrection to finally deduce, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he did, it does, it does change everything. Let's see what's next. Oh, there we go. And this is what Acts 1, 1 through, C, uh, 1 through 3 says. It says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles, whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, which is his death, by many infallible proofs. It doesn't say by one or... It's by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. He wasn't just walking around for one day and then out of here. It was 40 days he was around Jerusalem talking and being with them and teaching them. Speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at these infallible proofs. But uh, before we do, i got to watch the time. 
Matthew, Mark, I listed for you on your sheet. I think you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the, the, the references for all the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection is in all four of the Gospels. And what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just so you understand, we have four eyewitness accounts of that very uh, event in history. The, the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Four eyewitness accounts. Um, in the Old Testament law, just so you know, it required two or three witnesses to agree on something in order to establish it, that, that, thing, that event or that fact as true. In fact, you couldn't put someone to death on a trial without two or three witnesses agreeing. You had to have two or three eyewitnesses. Well, we have four. We have four that God gave us because he's going to go over the top to make sure we know we have many infallible proofs. But um, as you know, if you're familiar with reading your Bible, and if you're not, you need to start. I think Corey just mentioned, start reading in the book of John. That's a great first gospel to read. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read them all, you know what? They're not all identical. In fact, there's actually some apparent contradictions in them. And I say apparent because that's all they are. They're not contradictions. But I'm telling you, they don't all say the same thing. And we're going to look at something here in just a second. But I want to tell you something. These apparent contradictions make them more believable witnesses. They make them more believable. And I'll explain. When a crime is committed, um, and there are eyewitnesses to this crime, law, enfor law enforcement, if done properly, and I, should have, I wanted to ask you this, Andy, but hopefully you can confirm this at this point, but if done properly, I'm pretty sure you separate the witnesses right away to this crime so that they don't gather uh, together and start uh, rehashing what happened without um, giving their own personal testimony to what happened. Okay, there's a reason for this because uh, if you if you do that, they're going to be far more likely to provide an uninfluenced, pure account of what they saw from their own perspective and from their own past experience and worldview. They're not going to. Um, try to match up with what everybody else is saying because uh, that's what happens. You put them together, these three witnesses that or two, three, two or three witnesses that witnessed this crime, you get them together, they start rehashing what happened and then they, te they tend to sync up their stories so that they match. And I can kind of prove that this happens because think of what happens when kids try to concoct a lie to fool their parents or, or to fool some person in authority, a teacher or whatever. I'm sure you've probably been involved in that, even though I know you all probably think you haven't. But what, what do you do? You start, you start rehashing, going over. Okay, this is what happened. This is what we have to say. We got to do this. You're syncing up your story. You want it to be exactly the same. You don't want to be caught in a lie. So you say the exact same thing. And honestly, that ends up being good evidence that you're lying if people had good police and crime detection skills. But the point being is, it's, oh, it's good that they don't match exactly, because we have four actual account, uh, uh, eyewitness accounts of what actually happened. And uh, I have a recent example that I, I got from a book I was reading, and uh, I'm going to go over it with you. It's an it's actual crime that happened, and a robbery occurred at a small convenience store. Okay, So picture this, and I'm going to explain. There's two witnesses to this crime, and they end up having very different descriptions of, of the uh, perpetrator. But the crime is he walks in calmly to this convenience store and he lays a gun on the, on the counter with his finger on the trigger and a little plastic bag in his hand and he quietly says to the cashier, please put all the money in, in, the, in the bag. He does it. He then calmly takes it and walks out into the parking lot and he ends up getting away. Well, there's two, two witnesses to this crime 
and I'm going to go over them, their testimony because you're going to see, and it's almost going to look like they didn't witness the same crime. And they are. This is a real thing that happened, by the way. One's a 38-year-old female named Sylvia, and the other one's a 28, 23-year-old named Paul. Okay, Sylvia's married with kids. She's an interior designer, picking up milk on the way home from work. Paul's a 23-year-old, uh, single, no kids, an apprentice plumber, and he's visiting the cashier on his day off. All right. This is how they described the, sub the suspect. Sylvia described him as a younger boy in his teens, very polite, with a sweet voice. Didn't have a gun. Bought something at the store. Wore an Izod polo shirt and had no vehicle. The other suspect or the other uh, witness said he's a man of 24 to 25 years old. He had a threatening scowl on his face. He had a Ruger P95 9mm handgun. He bought nothing at the store. He might have worn a t-shirt and he ran to a 90s tan Nissan. I mean, it's like, did you guys witness the same thing? And I'm telling you, it all clears up when you understand where they were standing when they witnessed the crime. Sylvia was in line behind the guy that robbed the store. She didn't even see the gun when he laid it on there. And he didn't yell it. She assumed he bought something. However, Paul, he was back visiting the cashier and was behind the counter and saw the gun, saw the scowl on his face. She didn't even know what happened. She just happened to be there after they called the cops and gave that testimony. And uh, I'm just telling you, it all clears up that they both gave accurate testimony to the crime, and then they were able to obviously solve the crime in, in light of that. Um, anyways, i got to move on, but I wanted you to understand it all has to do from their own perspective, and that's what we have in those four gospel accounts. And I want to look at this in the, in the gospels real quick. And look, look in, uh, if you would, Matthew chapter... See, hold on, I gotta get my notes. Whatever it says on your notes, Matthew chapter 28. We're just gonna look at four different accounts of what happened during the resurrection here, real quick. The notes are gonna go fast, because I'm gonna have to go fast. But I want you to see this. Matthew 28, look in verse 1. <clears throat> in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, <clears throat> toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And it goes on and it tells you what happens there. But tell me, who was there? It's Mary Magdalene and who else? The, the other Mary. That's what we find out. Two women. Let's run over to Mark. Look in Mark chapter 6. Oh, excuse me. Mark 16. And look in verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome had bought, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone and so forth. But now we have three women at the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary, you find out who the other Mary was. It's Mary, the mother of James. And then you have who? Salome. Okay, so are they, well, let's just keep going. Look in Luke chapter 24. Verse 
Look in verse 1. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Uh, drop down to verse 10. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. Run over to the book of John. John chapter 20. And look in verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. And then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. All, all John records is Mary Magdalene. So you have four different accounts, all with different accounts of who was there. So which was correct? They're all correct is the answer to that. When, you believe, when you're a Bible believer and you believe God wrote it, first of all, um, you just believe every word, and it comes down to all of those women were there, and some of them just didn't record some of those facts at that time because they didn't think it was pertinent to what they were revealing or, or, or to the particular story at that point. So, obviously, Mary Magdalene was the only one that was uh, recorded in all four of those stories, but I just wanted you to see they have some what I would say is apparent contradictions. They don't all match up because they're all giving it to you from their own perspective, which makes them more believable witnesses. So, with that, uh, as our background, let's look at proof number one. These are going to come fast and furious. Proof number one, Jesus, dis, uh, excuse me, Jesus' disciples saw, talked, and ate with the risen Jesus on multiple occasions while living the rest of their lives as if they knew this to be true. And here's a key, most of them dying for it. Yeah. Look in, uh, in letter A, we're supposed to be in 1 Corinthians 15. I'd like you to go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Once again, I want to remind you, 1 Corinthians 15 is known as the resurrection chapter in your Bible, dealing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But look in verse 1. Paul writing here to this church at Corinth, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which is good news, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, unless you didn't have real faith, unless you had empty faith, vain faith. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So there you go. You have the gospel. It's dealing with the resurrection of Christ. This is the key. Look in verse 5. And that he was seen, and then, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter. Remember he said Peter, they went, Mary Magdalene went and found Peter first? That's what he's recounting. Remember, Mary Magdalene went and got Peter. I was seen of Cephas. And then he was seen of the twelve. Then verse 6. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. So here you have 500 people. At this point in time, Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians in about 59 AD. We're talking about 30 years, a little less than 30 years after um, Christ rose from the dead. And he's saying, listen, he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he said he was seen of Peter. Then he was seen of the rest of the, the other 12 disciples. And I'm... And then he was seen of above 500 brethren at one time. That's not even listening to their wives and children that probably saw him too. But he said, listen, they're not dead yet. Go ask them. Did you catch that? 
Look at it again. Above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present day. They're not dead yet. Go ask them. He did say some had fallen asleep. Some of these believers have fallen asleep in their home. They went home to be with the Lord. But you know what? You can go ask them. They're still around. And they saw the resur resurrected Savior. So letter A, let me give you your blank. He was seen of 12 disciples and above 500 brethren at once. Letter B. We have four very early written accounts, the four Gospels, within 70 years of Jesus' life. Most of them, honestly, were within 30 years of his life when they were written. Um, 20, 10, 20, 30 years. The only one that was 70 years later, potentially, is, is John's Gospel. He wrote it in about 90 AD or so, 60 years later. But let us see. For example, our two best written sources on Alexander the Great. How many of you learned about Alexander the Great in, in school yet? popular figure in history. No one questions his existence or that he lived and, and did that. Check this out. Our two best written sources on Alexander the Great from 350 BC weren't written until at least 400 years after his life. We have no accounts of Alexander the Great or what he did other than 400 years later. It was passed by word of mouth and then someone wrote it down. But we have four accounts written within that knew Jesus and that saw him resurrected and we got firsthand testimony. I'm telling you, we have way more proof for, for Jesus and the resurrection than we do of Alexander the Great, and no one's questioning that. Letter, letter D, the writings of early church leaders, give you a couple examples, Clement and Polycarp, for example, who actually knew the apostles, they confirmed that Jesus died on the cross and then rose again. So we have other written non-scripture non accounts that confirm this. And then uh, letter E, these disciples, they didn't willfully lie about this. How do we know this? That's your blank. How do we know that they didn't lie, these disciples? And here's your, here's your answer. Liars make very poor martyrs. They all died at different times and in different places, yet all for the same truth of preaching the resurrected Jesus as the only way to heaven. Think of this, guys and gals, sorry. Um, if, if, in fact, it was a lie, and you see uh, Thomas over here who's preaching the resurrected Christ, and he gets his, you know sword through his gut because he's preaching it and you're one of the other 11 and you're you're preaching this same false fable that's a lie and you you're are you going to continue doing it if you're going to get that treatment you're going to shut up and change your story i'm done lying i'm okay i'm done with that i'm telling you they all died in different times different places you know why because they knew it to be true yeah. and they felt obligated i have to preach this message people need saved from their sin and if i don't tell people about the resurrected christ how can you how can they be resurrected that's the whole issue um and I'm, i give you an account of some of these disciples of what happened to him james the brother of john they were the sons of zebedee he was killed by herod with the sword in 44 a.d that's actually recorded for you in acts 12 verse 2 you can go read about it we don't have time to do that today. But Philip, he's another of the disciples. He was imprisoned, whipped, and then crucified in Hierapolis in 52 AD. Matthew, he's the writer of your Gospel of Matthew. He was killed with the sword in Parthia. That's modern-day Iran in 60 AD for preaching the Gospel. And then I have Thomas's account. He preached in India. He was thrown into a flaming oven, then thrust through with spears in 70 AD. That's years later. I mean, you, you know he knew Matthew died, and Philip died, and James died. It didn't change a thing. You know why? They saw the resurrected Christ. They ate with Him. This wasn't going to change them. They had, they had a mission to do, and they were sent to the world. And Jesus said, I'll be with you always. You go. And that's what they did. Um, I'm telling you, this, uh, when I was in college, I went to Ohio State, and 
it was at Ohio State when I became a Christian. All right, that's when I, and th this article, I'm not asking you to read that. Please don't try to read that. I just want you to see the, the highlight of it. I actually cut that out of the Lantern newspaper. That's what they published at Ohio State. And in classes sometimes when I was bored, I would read the Lantern newspaper. And this was in there one, one week, and it was called The Watergate Debacle Helps Validate the Resurrection for Colson. Okay, how many of you even know what I'm talking about when I say the water, Watergate? Raise your hand if you know what Watergate is. Yeah, they don't do a very good job with history. Well, they, uh, it's just sad, but it, I'm, I'm surprised. I figured if you knew anything about history, it'd be Watergate because it's a very pro. Yeah. Well, let me, let me explain what it is, okay? How many of you guys know Richard Nixon had to resign from the presidency? All right. It was over Watergate. Let me explain Watergate. Um, this was a... Uh, a whole thing, but men were working on the re-election campaign for President Nixon. He's already president. He's trying to go for a re-election, and he actually wins re-election, by the way. But the men working on the campaign for him, they broke into the Watergate Hotel, hence the term Watergate. That's, it's, still a, it's still there in Washington, D.C. area. They broke into the Watergate Hotel and bugged the phones for the Democrat National Committee. They were trying to get information to learn how to you know, beat him in the campaign. It was wrong. It's, it, it, they got in trouble and they got caught. Uh, this was not ordered by President Nixon. This was not even ordered by his 12 closest advisors. It was people working for them that did it. They did it on their own volition, but then they found out about it. So did President Nixon, and they tried to cover it up. They didn't want to get in trouble. They just were like trying to brush it under the rug. Well, it got out, and of course there were hearings on Congress, and, and they did all that. And you know what? I have it here. I'm going to read you what Chuck, Chuck Colson was a lawyer that worked for President Nixon during this time. Okay, so he's working for the President of the United States as a lawyer, as an advisor, and he of course knows about this as part of the cover-up. At this time, he's not a Christian. Chuck Colson ends up getting saved and born again, and then he's writing books now. He's now dead, passed away. But I'm telling you, I want to read this article. This, this rocked my world as I'm reading the newspaper during my stupid engineering class that I thought the guy was really boring on. and. Uh, let me, just, let me just read what, what it says. This is Chuck Colson speaking. How do I know Jesus was raised from the dead? Let me tell you. In June 1972, I was at home with Patty, that's his wife, in McLean, Virginia, beside our swimming pool. The president was away in Key Biscayne taking, weekend, taking the weekend off. John Ehrlichman, another advisor to the president, called and said, Chuck, where's Howard Hunt? I explained that I hadn't seen Howard for months. He then told me that someone had broken into the Democrat National Committee office. I started laughing in disbelief. Then I discovered that some of our people were involved. I thought it would all blow over, but it didn't. All through the campaign, Watergate became an issue. It came up in late January or February of 73 when the Irving hearings started on the Hill. That's when Congress was investigating. And we knew it wasn't going to go away. Then on March 21st, so just another month later or so, 1973, John Dean walked in. He's another advisor to the president. John Dean walked into the president's office and said, Mr. President, there's a cancer growing on your presidency. And that's the first day that grown men would start getting sweaty palms. John Dean, in his memoirs, says that on April 8th, that's just three weeks later after he talked to the president, he went to the prosecutors to save my own skin, was his quote. He went to the prosecutors and kind of gave his testimony and told them what happened. He, didn't, he says, not to protect the Constitution did I do that, but not because he felt he should do his duty as an officer of the government, but to save his own skin, he went to the prosecutors to bargain immunity in order to escape prosecution himself and to testify against the presidency. And the moment he did that, Mr. Nixon's presidency was doomed. 
Every other aide went running in. This is Chuck Colson talking. He says, I took a lie detector test and leaked it to the New York Times. Everyone scrambled for cover the moment John Dean did that. The Nixon presidency was, for all practical purposes, over. The real cover-up lasted just three weeks, from March 21st to April 8th, and then it was finished. Now, what does that have to do with the resurrection? Well, imagine it. And this is key, guys. Listen up. The 12 senior aides to the President of the United States sitting around the Oval Office with all the power in the world and all the influence available to us, and we couldn't keep a lie for even three weeks. And you're going to tell me that 11 outcasts, the apostles, who, the Jews who were maligned by their own people, living in a conquered empire who had no army, no power, no influence, could do it? They were beaten. They were stoned thrown in prison, and all but one eventually died a martyr's death without ever having renounced Christ. No, it's humanly impossible unless they had seen the risen God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the apostle Peter would have been like John Dean. Remember, Peter already denied him three times. That was before he rose from the dead. Peter never denied him after that. Peter would have been exactly like John Dean. Peter would have run in. He had already done it three times. There would have been a smoking gun tape. There would have been a deathbed confession. There would have been some evidence. The best scholars for 2,000 years have been trying to discredit the resurrection, but they can't because it happened. I'm telling you, that rocked my world as a 21-year-old kid, reading that in my water and wastewater treatment plant class that honestly was so boring. (laughs) But uh, I'm telling you what, that does my heart good to hear that when you realize these 12 men had no power. They died for their faith and they never had a death pen confession. We have their writings and that's why we believe or can believe and I want you to believe today. So proof number two, we have 10 minutes. This is going to go quick. <laughs> the conversion of an enemy of the disciples and a vicious persecutor of the church. His name was Paul. Anybody tell me what his name was before he was, uh, uh, before he was saved, before he had his... It was Saul. Yep. So Saul, he, was a, he hated the church. You realize he was murdering Christians? He was, he was arresting them and taking them before the councils and getting them thrown into prison? He was, he was the man holding the coats of those that threw stones at Stephen after he preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was there. Consent, you can read all about it in Acts chapter uh, 6, 7, 8. Uh, and then 9, is, his conversion is, is, is listed there. Letter B, I'm not going to have time to turn any of those verses, but letter B, Christians were afraid of him even after his salvation. They were terrified of this man. This guy was, this guy was nuts. And you're telling me now I have to fellowship with him? They were literally afraid. It's listed for, I want, I want to turn there. Turn to Acts chapter 9, just one book to your, or two books to your left. It's worth seeing. Because I, I think this is one of the most amazing proofs for the, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This man, Paul, he wasn't a believer while Jesus lived, died, and when he rose again. He wasn't there those 40 days. Well, he, if he was there, he was not a believer at that point. He became a believer after he saw Jesus as a resurrected, glorified being on the road to Damascus and that shining light shone about him. But look in Acts chapter 9, verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man, talking about Paul, how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Uh, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Drop down 
Well, we don't have time to turn to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. It's just, or excuse me, yes we do, 26. Sorry, I'm in the wrong spot. Look in verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. I mean, would you have been afraid of him? I certainly would have been. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that the Lord and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So it took a little while for, for, for the, the believers at that time to trust Paul. They were like, uh, yeah, we're a little afraid of this guy. He was just throwing all of our relatives and friends in prison. And uh, it, it certainly was a... A life changer for some of them. Letter C. The Jews absolutely hated Paul for switching sides. They absolutely hated him for switching sides. Um, for lack of time, we're not going to turn to those verses. But letter D. Paul lived a persecuted life and eventually died for this truth. I mean, he was viciously beaten. In fact, it says, uh, what is it, four times received I, 40 stripes saved one? Or is it three times? Three times? I mean, he was, he was viciously, I mean, beaten. The Jews literally hated Paul. I mean, they needed to shut him up because he kept writing letters. He kept preaching the resurrected Christ, and they needed him to shut up because they didn't want people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But too many of us did believe. And that's really why you're sitting here today, because men like this didn't recant on their deathbed or didn't, didn't, uh, they, they stuck with it to the end because they believed and knew that this to be a fact. This isn't some uh, fable they were teaching and believing in. Proof number three. Oh, by the way, Paul was beheaded near Rome under Nero in 69 AD for his faith. Proof number three. The conversion of the unbelieving half-brother of Jesus. His name was James. And during Jesus' life, James wasn't a believer. You can read about that in Mark 6, 3-4. Basically, he was, they were offended at him. His brothers and sisters thought, uh, this guy thinks a little, he's a little full of himself. Just like you probably would have been if you were like, huh, my brother's the Lord. You know, he's perfect. Um, so they were offended at him during his life, but later on, something changed. You see, Jesus appeared to him, that is James, and Paul ended up meeting with him after his conversion. He goes and meets with James, the Lord's brother. He actually says this in, in Galatians chapter 1. He says, I didn't, I didn't go confer with anybody except for uh, a few of the disciples and James, the Lord's brother. I'm telling you, something changed in James's life. The, the, the brother of Jesus died a martyr as both uh, Christian and non-Christian sources attest. So what, what made him believe other than, uh, yeah, apparently my brother was the Lord who rose from the dead. So I think I'm going to believe. He became a pillar in the church at Jerusalem, quite frankly. Um, and then proof number four, the last one. The historical fact, and this might be the key one, but the historical fact that Jesus' tomb was empty and they never found the body. They never found the body. And there's three points to this uh, last proof. The first one is the Jerusalem factor. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he rose again, and then this resurrection was preached about in the same city just weeks later. Which is exactly what Acts 2.24 is. Just weeks later, they're preaching about this resurrected Savior in the same town that it happened. If the tomb wasn't empty, this falsehood would have quickly faded away. In fact, if they could have produced the body, you can bet they would have done so to stop this teaching. And you can bet they were trying to find one. Um, in fact, turn to Acts chapter 5. You're in Acts 9. Run over to Acts 5. 
And look in verse 34. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. And he's a guy that honestly, he was, he was the Jewish uh, teacher for the Apostle Paul, or when he was known as Saul. This Gamaliel, not a Christian man at this point. He's a Pharisee. He's a Jewish man. He's a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And he said to them, you men of Israel, you've got to understand what happened. I should have set some context. They've arrested a couple of the disciples, okay, for preaching this resurrected Jesus. And this Gamaliel saying, hey, hey, give them a little space here. And then he's speaking to the other Pharisees and the other people trying to condemn them. And he said unto them, verse 35, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do to, uh, as touching these men. For before these days arose, uh, before these, da uh, these days rose up Thetis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. In other words, this Thetis guy, he was, he was proclaiming himself to be some big great prophet, like Jesus did. But he said, his followers, after he died, they went away. They became nothing. They became to naught. Verse 37. And after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, and he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. It went away. Verse 38. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or work be of men, it will come to naught. It will come to nothing. But if it be of God... You cannot overthrow it, lest haply you be found even to fight against God. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were fighting against God here because obviously he rose from the dead. So, letter B, enemy testimony. What were the enemies, what were the enemies of the resurrection saying? Well, they were, uh, what, what, the enemies, uh, what were the enemies of the resurrection saying? That Jesus' body was stolen, that's your blank, by the disciples, admitting that the tomb was empty and that the body was not anywhere to be found. And I ask the question, is this even plausible or believable? And the answer is no way. It's not believable. Are we supposed to believe the disciples conspired to steal the body, pulled it off, and then were willing to suffer continuously and even die for what they knew to be a lie? This is so absurd that even non-Christian scholars universally reject this explanation today. They have to come up with other explanations because that's not even believable. It's not what happened. Letter C. And this, this is why we read all that about the women finding the, the tomb, I wanted to explain this. This is your blank. The testimony of women that the tomb was empty. Don't be offended at this because this is just fact. It says, now in the first century, this isn't on your notes, in the first century, Jewish and Roman cultures, still like much of the Middle East today, women were lowly esteemed and their testimony was considered very questionable in a court of law. That's just the culture. It's not right. I'm just saying that was the culture. That being the case, look at your bullet point. If you were going to concoct a story in an effort to fool others, you would never in that day and in that culture hurt your own credibility by saying that women first discovered the empty tomb. You wouldn't do it. The only plausible reason to include this detail is because that's what actually happened. You know, if you're going to create a lie in this culture to fool people, you know what you would have done? You'd have concocted the lie that Peter and Jane or Peter and uh, John found the tomb. You wouldn't have included the fact that it was Mary Magdalene and all the women. But every gospel account does it because you know why? That's what happened, Amen. and because God loves women, <laughs> honestly, because they're important too. And it's uh, it's the only religion that I would say actually honors that that truth. But. Uh, so that's, that's also just another proof for the resurrection. So in conclusion, I think I've almost finished here. Now we better understand Peter's statement in 2 Peter 1.16 when he says, 
we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Literally, that's, his, that's Peter's quote. He's like, this isn't a fable. How many of you are familiar with Aesop's fables? Those are fake stories, made-up stories. He's like, this isn't a made-up story. I'm not following some fable. I'm following the truth. Peter be followed, believed, and preached the truth, which is the opposite of a fable. Jesus is the truth, as it says in John 14, 6. And the, the question you need to ask yourself this weekend and going forward is, do you believe? Because eternity, honestly, is at stake. Eternity is at stake on this issue. And uh, we don't have time to go to any of those verses, and I apologize. They're all very awesome. But in, in 1 John 3, 3, let me just tell you this. It says that every man that hath this hope, the hope of the resurrection, he purifies himself even as he is pure. And so that's what I encourage you to do and to allow the resurrection of Jesus Christ to do in your life. Let it purify you. Let it make you say, man, because you died for me, I want to give my life to you. I owe you all. I owe it all to you. I'm not my own anymore. You bought me with a price.